1: So, whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Before I introduce our guests, I'm just going to plug real quickly a show that I'm starting. It's called The DevRev. It's about developer freedom. So, freedom in your code, your career, and your life. And uh, we're going to talk about, you know, anything that's holding you up from being happy where you're at. So, Check that out, thedevrev.com. We have a special guest this week, and that is Devin Estes. Devin, do you want to say hi? Howdy. How you doing, everybody? Now, we had you on before. I think it was episode 18. But you want to just remind people who you are since you haven't been on for a little bit?
2: Yeah, so I'm Devin. I am a developer based in Berlin, although I am American. We've lived here for almost four years now. Coming up on four years, and I for a long time was a freelancer, but I actually just started a position as a like a sort of real job now. So I'm working for a company called Orchard Systems, based out of the states, where I'm a senior developer doing Elixir stuff.
1: Good deal. We brought you on today to talk about testing in Elixir, and it's funny because I just got done recording Ruby Rogues, and we got we were talking about testing the front end on that one. So. <laughs> nice. I need to double check and see if JavaScript Jabber today will be the same thing. (laughs) Testing is one of those evergreen topics. You know, there's always something to talk about with testing. It's so true. And, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the benefits of it. But yeah, people argue a little bit about what they want to do with testing and why they do it and how they do it. So I'm curious, just to start out, you know, what are the benefits you get from testing and what's your approach?
2: Well, testing specifically in Elixir, the big benefits I see are... A, you have some sort of verification about what your code does, you know, Elixir does not have a strong type system, so you do need a little bit more of the, the testing side in order to make sure that you have some, you know, sort of verification that your code is behaving as you intend it to behave. You also get something that I find very important is, is uh, tests as documentation, so especially for unit tests documentation of what a code uh, what a function does uh, specifically what it's expected to do and that can take a lot of different forms depending on sort of what that function does whether it's a pure function that just takes in some data and spits out some data or whether there's side effects involved and you also you know you get some design help if you are doing test-driven design i find that's less important for me in elixir than it was in in working in object-oriented languages because in elixir just you know everything's a function or a piece of data so and and, well functions are just data so really it's all just data but yeah i use it much less for design because there frankly just is less to design when everything's a function but yeah it's to me it's just really helpful just to know like when am I done building something? Like, I, I write a test so I know when I'm done working on something and I can consider it shit. Otherwise, how do I know I'm done?
3: I was just going to say, I find that the doing the design or doing the API design in the test is like the, the biggest benefit because you can play with it and say, this is awful
2: before you wrote the code that would have led to the awful
3: API. <laughs> yeah,
2: but I for me, and I think maybe this is one of the reasons why sort of I've never stuck with a typed language or why a typed language has never really appealed to me is I sort of, I find a lot of value by playing around first and sort of like, it's, it's a little more difficult for me to know, like, I can tell that something is terrible, but it takes me a little bit of poking and playing before I finally find something that I like. I find it very difficult to find something that I like before I've like poked at implementing something. Um, If it's you know non-trivial, if it's small, of course the test helps. But if it's larger, like I these last two days I've worked on something that's pretty significant, and I I had to do two spikes before I finally found something that I liked. But I personally, I don't think I would have gotten there through just writing tests for the stuff that I needed because I don't know it's hard for me to conceptualize something before it exists
0: a little bit. Like I find it
2: a lot easier to come up with something good once I have something bad that I've written and to play around with that a little bit first. I don't know, that's sort of, I've always said that I'm sort of like an exploratory developer. Like I write a lot of spikes, I throw a lot of code away and that's how I find what I like because otherwise, you know, I'll write a test and and it looks great at first, but then I get to the implementation and the implementation's terrible or I write something and I think it's going to be great in a test and then it turns out that I've missed, you know, Three or four sort of edge cases that make the tests really gnarly and then the tests look terrible. So I don't know I bounce back and forth. Yeah, for me, I, I, I poke around a lot when I'm developing. I find that's how I get to something good is by, by failing a couple times and throwing it away and then starting over with what I've learned.
4: With that, you were mentioning the idea of like kind of having it be like a playground area. And I've had the opportunity over a couple of you know, over years of my career of working with different people, and I've seen some people where they they will like open up like in Ruby or in Elixir they'll open up like the REPL and they'll just kind of start hacking code in there as a way of kind of you know it, maybe it's an exploratory spike kind of thing, but maybe it's just oftentimes I've seen them exploring with the code they've just written, and that's mm-hmm. how they're interacting with the code. Mm-hmm. And for me, I find it's much more. Uh, enjoyable to to have that interaction and that playing with my own code that i've just written happening through tests one of the reasons is cuz you know like i don't have to keep retesting it manually and yeah. that <laughs> which is like such a pain but like it's also you know it, i kind of view it as like i see these people you know like these coworkers right? i totally respect them they're great people and it's just they've kind of come up with a different i don't know maybe they've come from a different background and it's just kind of the path they've come they're exploring with it interactively in a REPL, and the, it's almost the. I'm spending a little bit more time writing the code for the tests than they are, perhaps, but I end up with something that lasts longer, and I get more mm-hmm. benefit out of over the long term. So I'm just curious. Like you, kind of, it sounded like you're kind of doing TDD at times, and it sounds like you're doing spikes and then refactoring. Mm-hmm. So how do you kind of approach that? Is it yeah? What's so your
2: approach for something that's small? I will, and I know pretty clearly what I'm doing and how it's going to work, I will write the test first usually. But for something that's larger, and I don't necessarily know what I'm doing, I will usually do a spike or two or sometimes three, and then maybe write the test once I have some idea of what's going on. Or sometimes if I've thrown away the code twice, and I, I'm on the third thing, I, I will, if I really like it at that point, I'll just test what I have there's one side project that I'm working on for myself where it it relies pretty heavily on um integrations with a couple third parties, including GitHub, and like i I just got it to work and I've just been testing introduction because it's what I do, and it's a side project, and basically, once I got to the point where it was doing what I wanted, then I know like, okay, I can lock this down with tests and make sure that I don't break this. But I can pretty heavily mock out the stuff so that I don't need to rely on hitting the GitHub API and stuff like that. But now that I know this code works, I can really lock it down with test to prevent regressions because I don't want regressions in here. So that's another way that I'll do this is if it's something like that where it's very difficult to test because you're, there are a lot of side effects that you can't really control, like dealing with a third party API, sometimes just testing it by, you know, pushing code into production and making it work or staging or something like that. And then once it's working and you know it's working right, then you can cover what you have with tests knowing that it's working. And if you test what you have completely, then it shouldn't break unless the third party integration point breaks. Yeah. So I've,
3: uh, over the years found that I kind of can't do that. I feel like I should toy with it again, but I've been, I've gotten very, uh, maybe blinded, but definitely very, uh, in, in the groove of just writing the tests till it, till they feel right and then making the implementation work. But. I recently did a thing with Elm where I had like a 1400 line file, which I would never do. And uh, that Mm -hmm. turned out okay. So maybe I I shouldn't be so absolutely dead set focused on not doing
2: untested spikes. Yeah. I mean, I, especially on the topic of testing and especially sort of on the topic of testing in Elixir, I have some things that I consider rules, but I break them all the time. (laughs) Like (laughs) there are some times where it's much easier and better to break the rule than follow the rule. Sometimes you get better tests out of it. Sometimes you get cleaner code out of it. You know, uh, the rules are are there for like 90% of the time. But sometimes, you know, like the, the specific thing that wasn't working in this GitHub integration I was working on was I wasn't setting the header very specifically because I was using one of the experimental APIs where you need to set this like special header in your request. I wasn't setting it exactly perfectly the way they wanted it. So like... If I was testing that the header was being set correctly, I would just be testing against my incorrect uh, assumption of what the code was supposed to do. I, I needed to actually test it against their API manually so that I could figure out, does this actually work as intended? And now that I know it's working, and now that I know I have the headers set the way they want it, I can now test to make sure I'm setting the headers correctly because I know what correctly is. Like sometimes you need to figure out, you need to play around to know what it should be doing. Um, yeah, I,
3: I agree with that a lot. Yeah. Uh, specifically regarding integrations, I think that's yeah. a really good point because yeah, sometimes either they're documented poorly or they're uh, sub you know, subpar
2: documentation, or just they don't they don't work like they said they worked. Yeah, I mean, in this case specifically, they told me in one place that I needed to set one special header, and they told me in another place that I needed to set this other special header. So I needed them both, and not one or the other. So. I kept playing around with different combinations like what well, it's telling me I need to set this header. I'm setting this header and it's saying it's not working. Yeah, it, definitely with third party integrations. and And for me, for larger features as well, again, like there's for very large features, it can be difficult for me going into it to have an understanding of all the ways that feature might interact with the existing code. So sort of by Doing a spike, that helps me figure out what exactly I need to be testing for when implementing this feature. Like how is it going to interact with some uh, live running state? How is it going to interact with other parts of the code so that I know how those interactions, I know how those interactions are going to go. And sometimes I don't see those until I've done a little spike to help me just have more of an understanding of what the feature is going to do so I know what I need to test for. For smaller things, when you can see you know, when there aren't many interactions, it's a lot easier. But for me, for larger things, doing a spike or something like that before I write a test just helps me really grasp all of the things that I need to cover. And at that point, once I've once I've gained that information, I can both write better tests and write a much better implementation.
4: Well, Devin, I know uh, you've had some recent blog posts, and you uh, just in a <coughs> discussion right, right now, you would kind of alluded to the idea that you have some guidelines or rules and you you can you know recognize when it's appropriate to break them and so recently you had a a blog post talking about writing these you know tests in elixir and you talked about some of these specific rules and i thought it was really interesting i wanted to kind of kind of talk on this topic because uh, i was reading through these and it's like yeah you know these are a lot of the same rules i have but i hadn't really codified them and by writing them down you've like kind of given like a codified and exam with examples so could you just kind of walk us through some of these uh rules that you've kind of established yeah
2: so um well i think there are so to be super clear i'm talking in these specifically about unit tests which um when i think of testing um there's that whole idea of the testing pyramid where at the bottom the largest section you have unit tests and at the very top you have Um, very, very high level end to end tests or integration tests or whatever you want to call them. Um, basically using the application as a a user would use the application. I believe personally that there is a lot of value in unit tests and there's a lot of value in those very, very high level integration tests. And I pretty much ignore everything else in the middle because I think there's no value in them personally, especially in Elixir. So uh, in any functional languages, because you're just composing functions, you know, there's very little value in, you know, there's very little difference between a unit test and like a controller test or something I will uh, be moderately contentious on this point and and
3: argue. I do like to do a lot of kind of like mid-level integration tests that wire, you know, three or four pieces together. Maybe not top-down integration tests, but, you know, testing these things, how they interact. And for those, I find specifically that's the only time I'm ever actually going to look in detail at the APIs of those pieces in the middle and consider how the sort of how the functions feel. Because normally, I'll, I'll get them wired up and, and ignore it. But then six months down the road, I might want to refactor. And it turns out I didn't really design it so well. So just the middle pieces. Mm-hmm. The, that is, I think, the only benefit I've ever received from this middling integration test. But I do like it. Yeah,
2: I mean, if you're talking about, well, something that can be pretty difficult to test is if you have, let's say, three named processes running in your application. And you need to test the, the interactions between the three of them. If you do something in one process, it might do something in the other two. Given that that is a pretty difficult, but also very specific thing to test. There's some value in that. Like I said, these rules are meant to be broken, but I think for many people, that sort of thing is rarer than, you know, people testing at the, like actually using something like Wallaby to drive a browser and test. And then they also do controller tests and then they also do like API level tests, which are fairly redundant. And, you know, I'm cool with having something like drive a browser, or if your application is just an API, you can test those API endpoints because that's how a user uses your application. And then if you have integrations with processes, because that is a little tricky to set up. I mean, that's even a little tricky to set up in those sort of end-to-end tests, just to set the state up of those processes in a way that will test the behavior that you're trying to test is kind of difficult. So that's one of those cases where, yeah, sure, that might be a good thing to test in that sort of mid-level integration test. But I don't typically see a whole lot of value in testing controllers or stuff like that. I see most of the value in tests at the unit test level, which, again, the definition of a unit test can vary very significantly. And then at the sort of integration end-user end-to-end level, uh, you know I typically I write very few of those sort of end to end level tests I uh, you know have a couple sort of like happy path tests, maybe one failure, one success, maybe a couple failure and success, but not many, just to make sure that you know all of the pieces are hooked up together correctly you know, yeah that is that's that. all I do for that middle piece is just like it works, yeah, like you you know you don't need a lot of tests at that level, it's mostly just to make sure that the stuff is is hooked up. The, the pieces are connected correctly and everything is working as expected if you're an end user. And then you can handle all of the more difficult testing in unit tests. And that's, I think, also more beneficial from a documentation perspective, because typically when we're looking at a function, we want to see what that function does. We don't want to see the application from a user's perspective, because that doesn't give us the, the definition of the sort of clarity that we're looking for and the, the resolution that we're looking for, the very, very fine-grained resolution of what's going on at that function level. That is really great to see in a test where you have, you know, you have a described block for the function that you're testing, and that's the only function you're testing in that describe block. And then you have your tests in there that say this function does this thing it does that thing it does that thing and then you have a pretty clear description of what that function should do or is expected to do that doesn't mean that it always does that sometimes tests aren't entirely true you know there are times where i remember not too long ago i was refactoring an implementation of something that was touching touching a third party api and the tests were pretty heavily mocked out and i basically deleted the entire implementation of the all the functions in that module and all the tests still passed so clearly <laughs> the you know it's it, it can be a little easy to get into those traps sometimes so the tests aren't always telling you what's going on but hopefully they are telling you what's expected so I, I find a ton of value in that and on the, the unit level you can get a really good idea of what each function is supposed to do and that's just super super valuable documentation
3: so, real quick question for you related to that. So, you deleted the implementation and the test still passed. Uh-huh. So, in Ruby, I have forgotten the name of it, and I'm trying to look it up, but I'm not going to find it in time. But there was a sort of test fuzzer that would modify your code and remove stuff and see if. Oh yeah, was still... it called like mutant or something? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Set of three tools that were similar, and that was one. Yeah, of the, mutation uh, testing yeah so uh, do you know if anything like that exists for elixir because i'd I'd love to run that sort of thing over a code base because it's one thing to have good <coughs> coverage. It's another thing to you know see that hey, this code literally it still passes without it.
2: Yeah, I don't yet know of anything like that in Elixir. There is some value, I think, in property testing and stream stream data, but that really only gets to the the input part. Whereas mutant, if I understand it correctly, it would, you know, for example, if you had something in your code that said, like, you know, if this is true, it would change the assertion and say, if this is false, to make sure that it fails, if that is false. So instead of, you know, putting random inputs in you're actually changing the code to make sure like, if the code is changed, it fails. So I don't know of anything like that in Elixir yet. It wouldn't be hard to write given how easily accessible the Elixir uh, ASD is. So someone could totally do that if they wanted to. I don't think I'm going to take it on, but it does sound like a really cool project. And maybe I just haven't heard of it and it does exist, but it, it would be a pretty cool thing. And I think it would have a lot of value for sure.
3: Yeah, I, th- I think it'd be really cool. I dropped a link to mute, Mutant in the uh, show notes.
1: I'm going to chime in here for a second because, you know, you're talking about having written maybe not as many uh, end-to-end tests or integration tests between a couple of different components and doing most of the testing in unit tests. And that's kind of the traditional testing pyramid is, I guess, what I've heard it called. But I've had conversations over the last two weeks with Josh Justice, who we just recorded an episode of Ruby Rogues with, and Kent C. Dodds, who's uh, working in the React community. And they, they both kind of pushed back a little bit and have pushed more toward end to end tests, uh, with tools like Cypress, Cypress.io and then integration tests. And then the details of how the, the functions at the base level work kind of get checked as needed as it's valuable to have it. And so it, you know, their, their focus is a much higher up. And it seems like DHH has also said something along those lines. Mm-hmm. I just I, I think it's interesting that there are these different approaches. And I'm wondering if you see specific trade-offs to writing more end-to-end tests, especially as the tooling gets better versus writing unit tests. And and I'm kind of well, aiming this at the entire panel. Well,
2: one thing I think is we're lucky to have really spectacular tooling in Elixir. So we have uh, tools like Wallaby, which I've used, which is great. I'm also a big fan of uh, Boyd Mulder's, uh Phoenix integration test. I think that's what it's called. Um, um, yep. Which basically sits on top of like the, you know, what would normally be a controller test, but it gives you a really nice API to sort of go through a user flow. Um, and, uh, but the thing is they're still really fast and Wallaby is written in a way so that you can still run those integration tests uh, concurrently. You can still run them asynchronously. And that's, Awesome! Like that's the, the dream for many other languages, and we kind of get it for free. Um, and uh, same thing with integration tests. It, you know, at that point, if you are dealing with the database, if your application has a database, everything is going to be run in its own transaction. It's completely safe to run those, run all of those asynchronously, and that ameliorates some of the issue of those higher level tests, which is typically that those are much slower tests. They have a lot more setup. And they run slower because they're doing more they're covering more code they're testing more things, so one of the biggest issues there is the speed uh, but the thing that I think those that level of test lacks is that uh, again the granularity at the function level of documentation so um you know, there's trade-offs there. Yes, you can completely cover an application by testing it at that level, but you're going to have a lot more redundancy because for example, if you need to test, you know, how one function either returns an okay tuple or an error tuple and how that affects a user, and you need to test that in three or four different permutations, you're basically doing all of the same setup which could be significant. It could be putting a lot of stuff in the database. It could be making quite a few calls and visiting a couple pages. And you need to be doing all of that to test what is essentially a very small amount of functionality in a single function. So it's inefficient at times, but it does give you a very high level of security that your application is functioning as it's expected from the user's point of view, which is a valuable thing for sure. There's a lot of value in that. But for me, I have found that if you have a few of those tests, making sure that things are basically connected appropriately and you have something like dialyzer that's hopefully telling you that you know you are covering the possible returns from your functions and that you're not going to have issues there and you have a lot of unit tests that gets you there and it gives you the benefit I I feel very secure with that trio of a lot of unit tests a few integration tests and something like dialyzer I feel very secure with that. And I don't think I would feel more secure deploying an application that's passing to production with that setup than I would feel if all of those tests were written at the integration level or even just, you know, 50% of those were written at the integration level because most of the paths in the code in your code from the integration level, most of them can be very easily tested at the unit level, and I feel like, you know, saying unit level is, is tricky. So I'll, I'll give my definition of what a unit in Elixir is, because that's, it's hard to define what a unit is, especially in uh, a functional language, because you don't have objects. So you just have functions, you have modules and you have functions. So to me, a unit is anything that a function does within that given process. So when I'm writing unit tests, I am testing, you know, if a given function calls for other functions, I am also testing those four other functions. I'm not going to mock all of those functions out unless those functions have side effects. So it's sort of, you're getting integration at some point if you do view testing at that level, unit testing as that, uh, if you're not mocking out all of the other calls to other functions that you've written, um, because... You're testing, basically, if you view the call tree as a tree and all of the possible branches, you're always testing down, potentially, all of those branches at every uh, unit. So you do have a little bit of inefficiency there, but it is also more like an integration test in some way. I know there are some people that believe you should mock more heavily than I do, that you shouldn't duplicate the tests in that way. But... I find it easier both to reason about, and again, as documentation of what a function is expected to do, I find it easier to document that function if I'm looking at what that function is expected to do by uh, not mocking unless there's some side effect. So um, either it's interacting with uh, a library that I'm using that I don't want to test its interactions, or it has some genuine side effects, or it's hitting a third-party API, something like that. There are some side effects that I do leave in because, again, it's just sort of easier, like database interactions. I test those in unit tests without worry because the Ecto team has done an incredible job of making sure that that just works. Roughly 60
3: times a day, I have probably three or four images uploaded to Google Cloud Storage because they do it (laughs) on the tests. And I just have (laughs) it fixing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I look at a lot of this and, and I think there are definite trade-offs. You know, we, we've talked about some of them. For me, the biggest thing, though, is how it affects my workflow. I, I like the end-to-end tests as much as possible just because I know that the entire system works front to back. But yeah, and, and the efficiency, like if it's repeating stuff, I don't care as long as it's fast enough. As far as the rest of it goes, yeah, it has to be fast enough, right? Because if it interrupts my workflow to sit and wait for it, then, yeah, I'd rather go down a level and do integration or unit tests. I don't know that there's necessarily a better level of robustness one way or the other, though.
3: Yeah, I think in general, like most apps do up to five-ish really important things that the user actually uses them for and then have login and like registration. And I think you got to cover login and registration because since you don't actually do it that much, it's possible you mess something up there. With integration mm-hmm. tests and then like there's four or five major user interactions that you really want to be sure about and so I like writing those integration tests and having those drive the, the sort of the context or whatever the layers that actually do the stuff that the user was trying to do and then then writing unit tests. But yeah, I, I tend to not once I've got some broad coverage and you do get your best bang for your buck in terms of code coverage from integration tests, but once you have some, once I have some broad coverage with integration tests, I don't tend to spend much time there. Unless it's like I am thinking about this from the user's perspective, which we should all do, uh, somewhat regularly. Um,
1: yeah, but I, I will also just want to push back on test coverage because typically test coverage is I ran my test and the code got executed. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's tested or tested well. No, no,
3: definitely, definitely doesn't mean that. That's why I think something like Mutant seems really, really awesome. But uh, it it at least means that, right? I think there's some. I don't think anybody should strive for 100% test coverage, but I think there's you know some some level I sort of arbitrarily set at 80. That I think is roughly like, okay, we're kind of, this is not the most important thing to focus on anymore, mm-hmm. actually getting coverage. Uh, I was also just going to say integration tests in Elixir because of the way that Ecto sandboxes interact with Wallaby or um, any of the other integration testing frameworks now. Uh, really, really cool. So if you don't know, um, you can run the integration tests in parallel because each of them has a sandbox in the database. So they're not going to trample on each other the way they would in your typical Capybara Rails test.
0: Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section.
2: Yeah, and even Wallaby, even though it's, it's spinning up a headless browser to drive those, those tests, you can run that in parallel. And it will spin up, you know, it will use a lot of memory because it's spinning up, you know, however many cores you have on your machine or however many schedulers you have running on the machine to run those asynchronously. But you can run actual like headless browser integration tests asynchronously with Wallaby for free. And it just works because I believe it was, I don't know if it was Ecto 2 or 2.2 that they shipped the sandboxing. But I mean, I've never had any issues with that. And I can view a function that interacts with the database as a unit test because I know that that y- unit test is not going to interact with any other test that's running asynchronously. And that's another one of my sort of rules with unit tests is that unit tests should be able to be run asynchronously. If if you can run it if you can't run it asynchronously, it's probably not a unit test because it's probably interacting with some sort of global state and that's an integration sort of by default. So there are ways that you can get around that, usually by sort of mocking those dependencies, you know, if you have some gen server, you can mock that out so that you can actually unit test just for example the messages that you're sending to that server or the data that you're getting back from that server, you can basically mock that server out through its public interface by providing some sort of dummy module as an argument to the test that you're functioning, the function that you're testing. And that's, to me, I think there's a a huge amount of value in that because you can preserve the intention of what that test is doing or what that function is doing without having to spin up you know, these gen servers that you're depending on in that function in the actual production code. And then you can test the gen server independently, of course, but you still need, especially in those cases where you have functions interacting with something like, with other processes, not necessarily just a gen server, but, you know, an et stable or some other process, something else running in in the VM. Uh, you definitely need some sort of integration test to make sure that those connections are happening. And, you know, the messages that you're being sent are being processed accordingly in the gen servers or whatever other process that you're dealing with. Uh,
4: Devin, we've had you on before. And one of the things you talked about was that you're all in on Elixir. And so that was... The idea was that you're coming more directly from and committing to an Elixir path. I'm just curious, like with testing, since you have these other um, history or experience with these other frameworks, are are there any things that you're missing in what you're able to do with your Elixir testing? that you have from these other languages? You're like, wow, it'd be really nice if we could do this. No, actually. I mean, I think the...
2: I find testing in Elixir simpler in most cases. Most functions are... In most applications are pure functions, which is nice. Makes them really easy to test. You know, you don't have to do a lot of mocking. I remember in Ruby, I would frequently... Do a lot of mocking because I would be testing the interactions between the object that I'm testing and the objects that it collaborates with, and I would be testing messages sent between those objects, so that I could, you know, leverage the the sort of holy grail of polymorphism that you shouldn't care what the object is and only what the message that sent is. And in Elixir, I do far less mocking. I pretty much only mock if there's some side effect. That I'm trying to, uh, basically get rid of for the purpose of testing. And in that case, I actually learned quite a lot about how to deal with those side effects and, uh, mocking things out like that from the OO community. And that's actually sort of the way that I learned how to, or how I've, I've developed a, a way to test, uh, functions that interact with other processes. As I sort Did of you get it.
3: any of that from Pooter,
2: uh, practical object oriented design with Ruby? Yeah, a lot of that. Also, Sandy Metz's talk at RailsConf in 2013, her like magic tips of testing, where she basically says like, you know, you test the messages that are sent and you have commands and you have queries, basically, when you're dealing with messages between objects. So if you, if I'm, for example, or, or any side effects, I view it as pretty much any side effects. So for example, if I'm using like the file write function, that's a command. I'm telling it to do a thing and what matters to me is that I'm sending, I'm calling that function on that module. So if I really wanted to, I could pass in a sort of mock object and I could test that I'm sending the right, the, calling the right function on the right module with the right arguments. And that should give me enough confidence that in production using the real module, it's going to behave as I expect. Now, I don't actually mock out file system interactions because I find it easier to actually test that it's writing the file. But the you know that's a thing that you can't do. But definitely with Gen servers, if I have a function that basically calls a function in a Gen server's public interface, I will pass in a uh, sort of mock module, a different module to basically make sure that I'm sending the right, calling the right function with the right arguments. Uh, And that to me is enough confidence at the unit level that I'm interacting with that process as it should be interacted with. And he's not just saying this. I've uh, I've I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there are two kinds of ways that you can interact with another process. You can have something that's a command where you're telling it to do something. You don't really care what the return is. So, in the Gen Server world, that would be a cast where you tell it to do something. It changes its internal state, and it's not really my worry or concern what that process does with that message that I've sent it. I just know that I'm sending it that message and it's supposed to do a thing I want it to do. And then there are queries, which in GenServer world would be a call where you're calling a function and you're expecting a return. But for the purpose of the test, how that process actually gives me back the thing that I want is not my concern. I can just have it return any old thing and it doesn't matter because I'm going to be testing that Gen server in isolation to make sure those functions behave as I expect them to behave. I'm going to be also unit testing that gen server as well as the functions that interact with that gen server. So that, to me, gives me a lot of confidence. But again, when you're testing those units independently, especially with the interaction between processes, you definitely need uh, an integration to make sure that it is hooked up, that you're, you know, it is possible to have those two things, because you're using mocks, it is possible to have those two things not line up there are some libraries in the Elixir world to try and um, make that less of a problem. There's one called Mox, M-O-X, which basically allows you to define a behavior, and it makes sure that that behavior is implemented in both the real thing that you're testing and also in your fake thing that you're testing, your test double. Uh, so that should give you a little, bit more, a little bit more confidence that your test doubles and your actual implementations are aligned in the way that they should be. But you definitely need integration tests, a couple of integration tests just to make sure that those things are doing what we, we expect them to do, that those, the mocks and the real, real implementations line up. I'm curious if you have any
3: tips specifically around testing, uh, these gen servers named or, or otherwise, uh, because that's where I found I, I can do it. I can get it done. At no point have I thought, yes, this is absolutely the way I want to do this forever. So um, testing the servers themselves the, or the, the actual external processes. So like I've spun up, I've spun up a process to talk to it cause it's singleton or mm-hmm. just any, just any gen server. A lot of times, I mean, obviously I can just do that, do them non asynchronously if it's named mm-hmm. or I can allow myself to name it something else, but I don't know. I feel something about, I, I guess it's cause I'm trying to do unit testy things, but it is actually for sure an integration test. And anyway, I don't, I don't know if you have like good examples of that, but, um, well, I do it frequently. And at no point am I like real happy.
4: I was just going to share the the approach I really enjoy doing. I use this all the time. So like the idea is to have a gen server uh, have a struct that models the state. And so then that struct is, you know, I often call it state. And it models all of the transitions from one state to another, like, you know, any in the gen server, if a call is executed. It's basically just calling state perform this function. So then I can do all of the unit tests on the state about how it's supposed to be actually interacting and, and the calculations or behaviors it's supposed to have. Then at the gen server level, you know, one of the things I love about TDD is it informs it the way I design my code. It actually affects how I design it. And so I will create a gen server. So it's easy for me to like, especially if it's a named one, I'll have the ability to pass in an option to give it a different name, and then I can have a unit test that is directly talking to the Gen server, making sure it's actually wired up to my state correctly. So that's a little bit of a, a light integration test. So I'm not testing that as thoroughly as I am just my my state uh, struct changes. And then you know if it's uh, like a named Gen server in a system, then I might have one more like higher level integration tests, just that yes it's actually set up correctly it's named where it's supposed to be and I, I can talk to it so but that's that's the approach i really like i'd love to hear devin what how you've approached those things too
2: so one thing i don't do is test named servers because they are by definition global state if you have a named gen server it is global state um, so whenever i have a server that i want to be named that's an option that you pass in on start link. So typically, if I have a server that I want to be named, you can have, uh, you know, I'll have an option of named a true or named false. And I have the default name in there, but I can basically say named false for the purpose of testing. And then within each unit test, I have in, you know, my own little process within my little test that no one else has access to. That's one of the ways that I get around testing named gen servers is I don't test named gen servers, um, at least not at the unit level, but, and then I only test the public interface. So if there is a public interface for a gen server, we have those functions. I basically look at those functions. I usually, if, if it already exists, I write down first, I go through and I say all the things that that function does when I call that function, what are the things I expect this gen server to do? And then I try and figure out, you know, Like if I'm testing start link, for example, I'll make sure that it returns a PID and that maybe it sets some default state and I can check the state of that process and make sure that it is as I expect it to be after we initialize it, depending sometimes on the arguments that we give it. So, you know, if I give it these arguments, it has this default state. If I give it these other arguments, it has this different default state or, in you know, initial state maybe after init we have like a continue that we need to test something like that which in was it erlang 21 they added that handle continue callback to gen server which is awesome i really like it it can be a little tricky it means sometimes you are passing in other uh, basically mocks as well one of the things that i really like to do especially if there are a lot of asynchronous things is like if you in the case of that handle continue like let's imagine We have an init function in our gen server, and then we continue on to do something where it has to call two other functions or something. To ensure that it is calling those functions, we can pass in a mock for those functions to the init. It gets a little bit gnarly sometimes. Sometimes you end up passing in a lot of things. But in those uh, mock functions, you can send messages to the test process, and you can see that it is called you know, this function with these arguments and it's completely, well, not completely a unit test because we are testing one process sending a message to another process, but it's as close as a unit test as you're going to get because you're only sending processes, uh, messages between the process that you're testing and the test process itself. And I think